0: Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is one of the only or few stories in the New Testament that all four gospel writers include in their particular version. And each gospel writer uses this story in their own particular theological way to make a point. Right out of the chute, Matthew wants to make the point that Jesus is the expected Messiah, the son of David, coming to redeem Israel, just as the first David had done so many centuries before. Yet in his coming, he was not as expected. And so with that surprise for us, let us hear the word as as it is written and given to us in the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 17, and then 23 and 24. When they had come near Jerusalem, it was a large crowd and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them and he will send them back immediately." This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Zechariah, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Actually, the original text did not say and on a colt, it said and on a donkey, the colt, the foal of the donkey. But for Matthew, it's On a donkey and a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. Very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise for yourself. He left them went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. The next day, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and, he, and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? This is the word of the Lord. That's the question isn't it, by what authority? Not only for Jesus in his day, but for anyone in a position of authority in our day. I can think of no more word that is as fully packed with tension as the word authority is for us in our present culture. There's this small line between Authority and authoritarianism or totalitarianism. Authority with power combined with nothing else to go with it is abuse. You can make nuclear warheads if you have enough authority and power and you live somewhere near South Korea. But for those on the bottom with absolutely no authority, they remain powerless, and silent. By what authority? That's the question. Then and now. In Jesus' day, the authority structure was clearly defined. In Israel, at least, the Roman cohort, the soldiers representing Caesar, were in charge from the top down. The authority line was absolute, They had all the power. And locally, in Jerusalem and Israel, the temple and the priests and the temple police and the Sadducees and Pharisees had the power. They could determine who was in and out of the temple, who was pious and who was not, who was saved and who was not. It was their job to manage the gate, to keep the riffraff out like blind people and lame people. Further down, the men had all the power in that day, not the women, and the adults had the power over the children. For children to be singing in this parade was an anomaly. Children were meant to be quiet in the shadows, for they had no power at all. The structure was clear. So here is this parade with Jesus, who understood clearly these hierarchical rules, roles of authority, and he sends his two disciples to find not one, but two animals tied closely together and to bring them. One, a colt, which is a horse under four years old, a horse which is representing the warrior horse, the riding in on the stallion horse of an army general or captain, the horse of authority and power, and a donkey, the symbol of humility, and modesty. And they bring both animals to Jesus, and in a unfathomable way, they spread their garments on top of the two animals, and Jesus, in a sort of circus-like fashion, rides them both, I guess, with one foot. I have no idea. Matthew is not as worried about the practicality as he is the theology, and the point is that for Jesus, he had the authority... And the power. All power in heaven and earth has been given unto me, he tells the disciples at the end of Matthew. All the power in heaven and earth. And yet, with all that power, he chooses humility, vulnerability, weakness, and in the end, his own death. Oh, this parade, they were all lined up, all the people not in the temple, the peasants, the broken. There was a 15-year-old girl there, her baby on her hip, father nowhere to be seen, looking with apathy at the whole thing, wondering what all this was about, with yet a still glimmer of hope that it might be about her. There's a man there who had lost his job and been struggling for four years trying to find another one. There was a couple there going through the midst of a divorce. All of the broken people lined up and the children who had no voice at all were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. And Jesus rides in in power and in absolute humble weakness. And he orchestrated it every single minute of it to make a point. Jesus understood that power without vulnerability and weakness is abusive. And he also understood that vulnerability without power is being nothing but a victim. That both power and authority and vulnerability and weakness must be together for there to be true human life and flourishing. I have a friend in Atlanta who's been an amazingly successful businessman, contractor, a developer. He probably has built half of the buildings in Atlanta. He took us to his penthouse uh, condominium one time and looked out over the city, and I said, how many of those have you built? And he said, that's not the question. The question is, how many of those have I not built? I got to know him. I was respecting him because of his success, because of his amazing presence in the city. He did a lot of stuff. And we started playing golf together. And my respect grew from that to love for him when he told me the first, second hole of the golf course, his story of the most important moment in his life, when in the early 1980s, when he was gung-ho developing, the bottom fell out of the market and he went absolutely bankrupt. He's a bigger guy than I am in stature and in every other way, and he's sharing with me his own own vulnerability that he went bankrupt, and at that point he said, I reached the lowest point of my life, and now I look back on that as the best thing I've ever gone through because it taught me About humility. Power with vulnerability is what is missing in this world. I was at Hawker's about a week after they opened a couple of years ago. That's the Asian fusion restaurant across Post Street. Just checking it out, sitting at the bar, having some Tom Yum soup and I noticed that everybody there was about 30 years younger than I am, and they all had tattoos and piercings and multicolored hair. They were the younger generation, those we might call the millennials. And as I'm looking at all these young people, this incredible community of food and service and so forth, I look to my left sitting at the bar, and I saw this giant fortress of red brick that is Riverside Presbyterian Church, and it struck me that the chasm between the people at Hawkers and Riverside Presbyterian Church is about 8,000 miles, even though it was only about 60 feet. And now, what must they look when they see this church but a sort of powerful fortress mentality? And many of us here as members represent that sort of powerful alpha. Male or female presence. Riverside is known as this powerful place, and it struck me what can we do to share with them the true vulnerability that we have in this church? Because in doing that, I suspect we might for them be a place of hospitality. Last week I was talking to Sam Adams, our preacher from Union Seminary and I was telling them about my scary time at seminary with two professors, especially Jim Mays and John Leith. I can't believe I'm calling them by their first names because I never did in their face. It was always Dr. Mays and Dr. Leith, and you genuflect when you came before them. You were scared to death of them. And I, and I said, things aren't like that now, right? He goes, Nope. All my students call me by my first name, Sam. And I can't really teach the way they did didactically through deduction method. I have to have a sort of corporate process where we're all teaching each other and we're all learning together. There's this democratization of the whole student process. You know what I thought immediately? That's exactly what's wrong with our our young people today. There is no hierarchy of leadership there's nobody in charge we're treating our children just like they had the same power we do what is this egalitarian stuff that's going on we got to get things right who's in charge here where's the authority i mean i'm in my black robes i've got the preacher's authority i just read the authority of scripture we're in the church where's the church's authority somebody needs to be in charge It actually wasn't that dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness. But I did say to him, you know, that's an interesting, uh, I think, uh, reality check. Because that's exactly what's happening in our world today. This movement of democracy, democratization for all people in a sort of everybody now is their own authority. I even looked on the internet and got plenty of evidence for why my case could be supported. It's called this bias. Well, there are a lot of biases, but this particular bias is called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which states that people's actual competence is inversely proportional to their perceived confidence. That is to say, the less we know, the more we think we do know. Therefore, we are all now experts on everything. All we need to do is go to the Internet, and it will tell us that you should not have your children vaccinated because there is plenty of evidence to support it. When, in fact, almost every single physician says you should vaccinate your children. But the internet says, make your choice. When Jesus decided to parade into Jerusalem, he upended a whole understanding of hierarchy. When I remembered that parade after dissing the millennial generation and the young people for claiming too much authority on their own, I was guilty because as i thought about it that's exactly what jesus did in this parade he empowered the people who had none he gave them a sense of authority that they had never had before i'm up here trying to claim all this hierarchical stuff and jesus in the meantime is flattening it all offering his unbelievable love to every single person gathered there, and of course the temple authorities hated it. It messed up their game. So when he goes in and turns over the tables, the money changers, what's he doing? He's undermining that whole process of who's in and out. If you didn't have money, you couldn't buy a dove for a sacrifice. You weren't in. If you didn't have the right money, say you were an immigrant, you couldn't buy anything for the sacrifice They determine who was in and out. And after he turns over the tables, Matthew says, Jesus in the temple heals a blind man and a lame man who had never been allowed in the temple until that point. Everything now upside down. No longer hierarchy top down, but hierarchy bottom up. Jesus, this king of the Jews, rides in on two animals predominantly to show us that authority is present But so is this amazing vulnerability and humility. So I need to confess something to you. It's not fair for me to talk about Jesus sharing his vulnerability without me sharing mine. Now this is not about me. It is about us. Twelve years ago, coming up in May... I preached a sermon on Mother's Day that has been known as the Mother's Day Massacre. (laughs) It was actually one of the best sermons I have ever written, all humility aside. And it was, in terms of justice and truth, perfect. It was about the Ethiopian eunuch who was... Sexually and socially and culturally completely disconnected from the social order, yet who simply asked to be baptized and is brought in simply by virtue of that baptism. And I was making the equation, the parallel that the Ethiopian eunuch is the uh, GLBT community in our world today. It was Prophetic. On Mother's Day. And there were four generations of... I had no idea Mother's Day was such a big deal at Riverside. Four generations of mothers in our congregation. It was packed to the gills. And I'm up talking about GLBT people. And it was—it came back to me from one of the couples who ended up leaving the church over that. When their daughter leaned over as they were going to Mother's Day luncheon and asked, Mommy, what's a transgendered person? It created an enormous row. I was absolutely right. And I was absolutely wrong. Not in that circumstance should I have preached it. I rationalized it because the General Assembly was happening in three weeks. I wouldn't get to preach on the subject again. We needed to address the issue I didn't think anything about Mother's Day in Atlanta. It wasn't that big a deal. And plus, here's the real issue. My mother had died the day after Mother's Day, the year before. Anita was struggling with her own mom. Our children's birth mother had died five years before that. We were not feeling real chummy about Mother's Day. And so I devised in a really unconscious way to set up this prophetic distance between myself and you because I felt vulnerable. And I didn't want to feel vulnerable. I wanted to feel disconnected, and so I managed to do just that. Of course, I would not preach that sermon on Mother's Day again, hopefully, (laughs) although you always squirm when I get up to preach on Mother's Day. (laughs) And that sermon needs to be preached, but in the right context. Such is the way of love. I was not loving. I was prophetic. And Jesus gave up all of that power simply to make himself accessible to us. And to show us what true love is all about. Ultimate vulnerability. So may it be for us. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.